0: On the third floor of the river view, she wakes alone at noon,
1: her mother's tiny wind up clock ticking through the room. Hi, I'm Corey. And Feeling I'm Sean. Pain. And this is the Shadowscape Podcast, the Folk Alliance edition. Today, we are on location in the Focal Alliance offices,
2: specifically their beautiful conference room, street side in the River Market district of Kansas City, Missouri. So you're going to hear things like the Kansas City streetcar going by, you're going to hear the mailman coming in the door behind us, and you're going to hear their hardworking team on the other side of this wall doing their job, and that's just going to be all part of the podcast experience today.
1: What's nice is I actually used to live across the street, so I feel very at home. Yep. But I didn't really like that apartment, so I don't know if it's a good memory or a bad memory. <laughs> but anyway, today we have a very special guest. It is the executive director of all things Folk Alliance, the, the wizard himself, Angus Finnin. Hello. How are you? I'm doing great. So you have been uh, known around Folk Alliance as the nicest guy anyone's ever met. I have my moments. Yeah, believe me. <laughs> right. is it, is it all just you putting on a good face? Or are you do you do you think you're a nice guy? Um, well, <laughs> I've been
0: I've been when people ask where I'm from, once I say a few words that clearly don't fit into the Midwest, <laughs> and I let them know I'm from Canada, then they say, "Oh, well, that's why you're so nice." So there is sort of a Canadian character to it. It's kind of um, it's a positive stereotype. It is. And it's part of growing up as the kid brother to America. Like uh-huh. Canada is the kid brother to it's America. It's is what I've heard it called. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think there's um, coming into the U.S. Um, as an outsider. Um, there's just the, the fitting in-ness of trying to find your place in a country that's not your own, in a city that's still... Uh, still new, but uh, home at this stage. Um, so there's n- part of that character, and then there's just uh, the diplomatic nature of Canadians. Right. And um, what do and you then think guess that I'm, is?
1: Why why are all Canadians? I I have never met anything but a nice Canadian.
0: Well, Canada doesn't have a hold on you know being nice or nicer. Um, but I think in general, um, I don't know. I've thought a lot about this. I, I've I often think about um. Canada as a place and America as a people. Mm. And and so America is like people That's inhabiting deep. a place and Canada is a place inhabited by people. And I think that there is, I mean, literally growing up on a farm where you couldn't see your nearest neighbor, you psychologically as a country growing up where you need to rely on your neighbor based on the weather and the land and all of those things. Um, yeah, it, I just think it's part of the, the psyche that you... Uh, If you're nice to your neighbors, they're going to help you when you need them, as opposed to,
1: uh,
0: well, I don't know, as opposed to arming (laughs) yourself in fear of your neighbor.
1: Right. So for all of those in the world who don't know who Angus Finnan is, would you enlighten us? Uh,
0: Sure. Um, So I am the executive director of Folk Alliance International, um, which is a, a national 501c3, a charity here in Kansas City, but serving... Um, the United States, Canada, and uh, an international membership. Uh, I've been here four years in this role, um, and previously was the uh, Touring and Audience Development Officer for the Ontario Arts Council in Toronto, um, worked with Community Futures, uh, a rural economic development agency in Ontario uh, for a number of years, was the past president of Folk Music Ontario, based out of Ottawa, and... Um, And that was a a board role with that organization, sort of a a smaller version of Folk Alliance, but um, specific to Canada. And uh, prior to that, ran a folk festival for seven years in my hometown um, called the Shelter Valley Folk Festival. And uh, all of that was informed by uh, a near 10-year touring career as a singer-songwriter, which was my escape from a short-lived teaching career um, i did two years in the canadian arctic and then retired
1: so teaching's not for you no <laughs> i i did i watched
0: um there's a movie uh, mr holland's opus where he has this moment in the movie where he can abandon his life and run away to new york and um and he, he chooses to stay and to keep teaching the kids and at the end of it, it obviously there's an opus of all his his past students who come back um at his retirement and i remember uh, in my second year of teaching it was a particularly challenging uh, setting and and location where i was teaching but i remember realizing that i just needed more immediate um reward and return you know, not necessarily on a daily basis, but I wasn't going to wait to the end of a career for the, I needed some sort of at least
2: annual sense of event. 20 years of your life has passed and you're not sure that this was the right path. Yeah. But you said something earlier when we were talking about how that, teaching career in that particular people group and situation gave you a certain perspective of diversity in your role now is that correct is that what you were saying
0: sure i mean i, I think each one of each one of my um, career adventures and and life adventures have informed who I am now and how I serve in this role I mean as it does for for everyone but in that particular environment I was teaching in um a First Nations community an indigenous community in northern Ontario called Moussigny. Uh, there are no roads into Moosini you take the polar bear express train to get there wow. um it's I was hoping you you take the polar bear I was really <laughs> hoping you stopped there <laughs> they, they saddle him up <laughs> you hop yeah. on um and it uh, it wasn't a uh, a reserve but it was it was an abandoned uh, uh, army navy town in the north opening up into james bay and hudson's bay in the arctic um, that had been sort of backfilled by folks coming off overpopulated reserves in in the area along that coast and mm-hmm. anyway, it was just a very um a, a fascinating uh, community and culture and experience and actually went through university for um what was then called Native and Northern Education, but uh, Indigenous and Northern Education, and so it was an area of interest that was influenced by experiences growing up and my my parents' interest in um, Indigenous communities throughout North America, and um, yeah, so it's it's certainly that's one one thread in the fabric of the the values that uh, that influenced the ethos of the organization at this stage. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Well, in reading about you and and trying to learn more about you, um, our interaction uh, really started only weeks ago uh, within the the Folk Alliance conference, and uh, so we, we you know we've been trying to do some research and kind of dig into who you are, and it seems that you're extremely highly educated, at least comparatively to guys
2: like ourselves. College dropouts on <laughs>
1: <laughs> very educated, Ozarks. very um, kind of. You, you, it seems like you spent a little bit of time in school. Um, and in, and in talking to you, you telling us about your parents being, um, actors and I'm just, I'm just curious knowing you now and seeing, you know, hearing your music and, and knowing what you do within the full community, how teaching ever even really happened. It was, was that maybe a career path you were thinking before all this music happened? Uh, It was. And I mean, I don't think of myself as
0: highly educated. Um, I was a terrible student. Um, I grew up on a farm. There were 10 in my grade 8 class. Um, My high school had 127 students at it when I left. There wasn't a musical instrument in either my elementary or um, secondary schooling. There wasn't a music teacher at the high school. The only instrument I ever saw was my French teacher would bring in his guitar every now and then and sing some songs in French to try and engage us in a language
2: right.
0: none of us cared for. Because although it was you know it's it's the second language of the country, I didn't meet a French-speaking person until I was 16 on the other side of the country. So I might as well have been learning Dutch because there were more Dutch. Um, uh, descendants in my school and most of the farms, the tobacco farms around where I grew up were all owned by Dutch folks. So um, yeah, I just, I didn't connect with academia in any way and did everything I could to um, get out of school. And then eventually my teachers just kept pushing me into the next (laughs) program because they saw that there was a spark, but right. the spark wasn't connecting with things in a standard classroom setting. Right. Um, and I mean, that includes starting university in archaeology, mostly because I like Greek myths and I wanted to dig stuff up. And then dropping out of archaeology because I realized I wasn't going to get to dig stuff up anytime soon <laughs> and going into drama therapy, you know, a highly employable career, which um, in through drama therapy, um, Working with uh, with students in that program, I was drawn to uh, to teaching, but um, but didn't want to teach in a regular school system, and uh, went through a program for that uh, northern teaching experience.
1: Very interesting.
0: But all of it was in spite of the education that I received. Really, I mean, I had amazing teachers and uh, moments and, and classes. But again, it was just kind of harvesting um, the little gems throughout that experience as opposed to some epic academic right. you know, background.
1: Right. I, I believe it's time that we invent the website Wikipedia, in my words, and we find the people who wrote the Wikipedia and the people who the Wikipedia is about and let them edit their own Wikipedia. Do do
2: you like little pop-up bubbles yeah. that you can click on. Here's what Angus Finnan has to say about his, his education. I,
1: not really. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's awesome. Um, so you went from being a teacher and you threw yourself into being a touring artist. When you were a teacher, were you making music at that point? Um, I had... I had been playing
0: music for a few years at at university, but I mean to be very honest, um, in Montreal when I was um, studying theater, there was a particular pub called Hurley's. First, the old Dublin, and then Hurley's, um, that I would go to with some friends, and uh, they had great beer on tap but they also had great music and uh, li- and live music so th- seeing live music was always you know an, an interest and it wasn't always folk music and it still isn't always folk music um, but I remember sitting in um, Hurley's and nursing my pint because you know limited <laughs> cash resources it was at a time when you could still get five dollars out of an ATM um, wow. I remember because there was one time when there was $7 in the account and I could still get out $5. i <laughs> have um, been but, there too. Yeah, and I remember sitting there with nursing that pint, listening to these songs that I knew and loved, uh, not because my parents sang them, but because I grew up hearing them and they were on records and, um, and thinking, wow, the guy who's singing these songs is getting paid to sing them and people are going and putting money in his tip jar. And he's hanging out in a bar. And he's ha- and, and if, if I just picked up that guitar that's sitting under my bed and learned to play the songs that I already know, rather than paying to sing along, I could be paid to sing them. So it was a mercenary first uh, venture. I mean, I loved the songs. Um, and the I think the thing about those songs was the, um, the, the ballad nature of them and the storytelling and the... the very uh, grassroots and sentimental and romantic and epic uh, heroic um approach to traditional irish music so there was an instant draw but but it was also i was acutely aware that i'm not i'm from canada like my experience growing up was so that drew me to the canadian folk songs and in a place like montreal you could easily pepper in you know, the Canadian classics along with with Irish songs. And that was really the beginning of playing music. By the time I was teaching, um, I was in that town with very little else to do. I mean, one paved road, all else was dirt roads and the the tracks that the Polar Bear Express sat on. Um, My my records and cassettes and CDs were my sort of uh, solace and my, my window out from that, right. that community. So I, I remember listening to those and collecting uh, recordings and sort of studying the journey that those artists were on and, and fascinated by the story of Canada and the story um, that was told by artists from other countries of the country they were from. and, it was re- remarkable to me, the power of those songs to, to, uh, lend a view into a space. So if it was a Midwestern artist, like to have actually an evocative impression of what life was like or is like, um, in the, the prairies or the plains based on their, their language and their presentation. And so that, that intrigued me. And, uh, and I started writing at that time, uh, when teaching and then, quickly looked for a way to get into the music scene
1: it was a bit invigorating like oh I I think I'm done here now I, this music is taking over a bit
0: yeah I mean I remember w- walking along um, one of the little muddy rivers there and it's uh, in Musse it's up above just at the the end of the tree line so it's muskeg and very you know swampy um, ground all around um, the the town and very um, stunted uh, trees. And I remember walking along that river and thinking, okay, well, what is, am I going back to art school? Am I going to like, follow this thing called music? And um, I, I know that there's a more creative way that isn't as confined as being, in, and not that teaching wasn't creative, um, but it just felt very confined to an experience with one particular group of people right. daily. And, um, Yeah, it was just at that age and stage, you know, a hunger to do something more. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that it would be actually being the one to be an artist for a period of time. But it
2: was, it seemed like it was waiting there to be explored and ran with it. I know one of the questions that we get all the time from younger musicians aspiring to do more music um, is like, when did you quit your day job? How did you quit your day job? How did you go full time? What did that look like? How long were you homeless? You know, like, like, and, and for me, it's such a, it's such an ethereal answer. I don't really know. It was, it was an, it was a difficult transition, but a natural one at the same time. What, what did that transition look like for you? Did you just have a part-time job, quit a part-time job, live in your car, go on the road, get taken out by a bigger artist? What, what, what did that transition look like for you?
0: Um it, well it looked like leaving that that job at the end of the school year um and deciding not to come back and having already planned to spend the summer um off between a teaching year so
2: you had a bit um, of a nest egg built up Yeah and I, I just thought I'll of. take
0: the you know that summer and and go out to see some folk festivals and um I, I remember going to one and sitting up. Interestingly, one of the bands that I wanted to see uh, from Ontario was playing at a festival, and their kids showcased at Folk Alliance this year. Um, so it's. Wow. Uh, but I remember going to see that that band and sitting um, at, in the amphitheater watching them and having this moment where I realized. I never want to sit in the audience again I want to run a folk festival or be on stage at a folk festival or do something <laughs> with this, but buying a ticket to come in and sit and watch, like there was, there was an energy that wasn't being
2: tapped into. Yeah. And it lights a fire inside your chest. Yep, absolutely. I, I feel that every time I'm at Folk Alliance. Absolutely.
1: Honestly, every time I see a show, I almost, by the time it can be my favorite artist, 45 minutes in, I am miserable that I'm not playing a show right then. Yeah, it's like I love you guys, but man, this really makes me want to just jump on stage and pick up a guitar and jam. Yeah, uh, do you think for you it took it was a, it was a matter of courage or was it just a matter of excitement and like nothing's going to stop me now
2: or desperation? I have no choice.
1: Um,
0: it didn't feel courageous. It didn't feel desperate, and it didn't feel whatever. The second item, as you mentioned, (laughs) whatever Um, you said, it it was more of a conviction. It it was more, I have to figure out something to do. I know I can do this. I know I care about the musical format. I know I have enough uh, artistic critical eye on other things that I can, you know, apply that to my own work and create something that I think. I'll be proud of and will be uh, inspiring for others. So it just felt like all of the components are there and if I work and harness this, I can do something with it. I had no idea what the potential end product or end result of or, or career would be, but I, I just dream big and scale back as reality required and never imagined that it wouldn't be a success.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. And so you spent... When, whenever you quit your job, did you just live on the road, pretty much?
0: Um, I mean, in the beginning, I was just based regionally. So I was in southern Ontario, uh, about an hour and a half east of Toronto, and I would drive I would drive six hours to an open stage if it meant auditioning for a festival, um, and sometimes did that and showed up and sang my two songs, won the slot at their festival, only to have them realize that I wasn't from there and they were incredulous that someone had driven six hours to do two songs so they <laughs> said well you know normally it's for local people but you did win and you did drive six hours so we'll give you a slot anyway and it was just really like building at that level just going anywhere i could to share the work learn see what other artists were doing um and and part of that was discovering Folk Alliance and, and coming into Folk Alliance as as an artist uh, for
2: a number of years with no intention or idea or ambition to do anything other than be an artist. And that, that was going to be one of my big questions. I was talking to Corey about this just up the street in Key Coffee, was how do you go from being a regional folk songwriter to being the... Uh, the day to day top person uh, you know at at the folk alliance international because well, I know for me when you when you go from not knowing what folk alliance is and not and it not being in your life to it being in your life, it comes crashing in it comes crashing in what what did that look like for you um, well i mean it wasn 't a leap from
0: r- regional to running sure there's I mean, a transition it, it went from regional to um national touring artist to international touring artist to you know multiple records producing um some uh compilations cd projects getting involved you know in those touring days most of those touring engagements came from folk lines from okay. coming building relationships uh Showcasing at the regional conferences. Uh, I did one showcase, one official showcase at Folk Alliance in, in my full time touring career. Um, so it, but to me, it was about tapping into the community and realizing that this place was where everyone gathered, where there was no better way to connect with all of the people who, no matter where I was going to go in North America, mm-hmm knew what the scene was in that place. Yeah. And it was really mining those relationships and seeing where there was interest and then just going to where that interest was. So right. literally, if somebody was interested in California, well, I'm going to route a tour through California and talk to them well in advance and find other house concerts and then go back there again and go back there again. Mm-hmm. Um, and to do that in multiple places. So at a certain point, it went from being a touring, a regional touring artist with a home base to... Um, to living primarily on the road and being out three months at a time and, mm-hmm. and really that was the full time uh, touring career and, and during during all of those years you know you go to you get booked to play at a festival you've got half an hour on the main stage and maybe you've got one side stage during the day during a three day festival um, I found myself looking around you know after after looking at what other artists were doing then looking at well what what does this organization do and um, it was a, it was a mixture of a list of things that I would never do if I ran a festival. Um, you know, if the food was terrible backstage, well, the way to make artists happy is to like actually feed, feed them good food, like home they cook make a home men. cooked chili and some fresh bread instead of, you know, a plastic tray of things with the crust cut off. And yes. so I had a whole shopping list of those things. And then also things that were really inspiring. And at a certain point it It just flipped from, well, if I ran a festival to when I run a festival. And then at a certain point touring, um, I remember I was driving through Texas because I had a handheld tape, one of those micro cassette recorders and just starting to make a list of all the artists that I'd met that I was inspired by that if I ran a festival, I was going to invite. And then it was having conversations with those artists saying hey if i did it would you and the ifs just started to become more and more real and then it was oh i guess i'm starting a festival um and this was in my in my hometown but it was just pooling all of the lessons learned on the road and 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 so many times i'd be at a festival and think wow i would th- if there was something like this in my hometown, I, you know, my childhood would have been different or, you know, we all would have enjoyed something like this. And then it just became obvious that that's, that was the next step. And coming back to Folk Alliance, um, not as an artist, but as someone starting a festival meant a whole new relationship to Folk Alliance and a whole new relationship to why I was there. And then it's looking for artists as opposed to competing with artists for the, for the slots.
1: No, you're talking about your, your touring days what I'm I'm interested to know is how you as an artist had to approach your career and build your career um it, when I'm, I'm guessing it's it's changed so much for artists now as far as like I, I have no idea like if you were investing in a lot of time on the internet and building social networks and things like what take what artists are doing now versus it seems like you're you were just like kind of hand-to-hand combat, like one-on-one relationships. What was building your career like versus um, maybe what it looks like now?
0: I, I remember being at a conference in in Toronto and having my compact laptop out, which weighed a ton, and an extension cord to get it, and, and other artists like looking at me like I was some kind of business mogul freak um, <laughs> because I had a laptop. And I had, you know, you... Touring, I'd stop in at truck stops and be outside plugging my laptop into the outside, you know, um, wall outlet. The, wall outlet, and then also an actual phone jack from the phone jack in the laptop into the side of the payphone. <laughs> and I didn't know there was one. Yeah, absolutely. There was an era where there were phone jacks in the in, uh, at the side where you could um, plug in and then make a call through the laptop back to my home phone. So, you know, a long distance call back, and then I would put in seven commas after the phone while my answering service at home picked up and it was asking me to punch in numbers to make it a collect call. And then you have those numbers sequenced in as well so that it so I could get online to the internet by calling long distance back home (laughs) to check. exactly, Um, Because there wasn't, I mean, that was pre-Wi-Fi. That wasn't that long ago. It's amazing. At all. And that was like, that was the hack to get, to collect email on the road.
1: How did you even figure that out? I I don't know. I was smarter than, yeah. See, you are smart. (laughs) You might have said you're a bad student or didn't like education, but...
2: I've literally never heard anyone ever do that, and I, ever. I try my best not to be one of those like grumpy old men. that's like kids in high school today will never, but kids in high school today will never have to jump through that <laughs> hurdle to tour on the road and email and communicate.
0: And ever. I was doing like all posters, all promo, all tickets. My um, using Word, like just. Dropping things in, figuring out how to like... Sweet like
2: 3D art, word art. Absolutely. Do you remember word art? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Did Clippy help you? Yeah, absolutely.
1: <laughs> all the time. This podcast is brought to you by Clippy. Yeah. <laughs> Microsoft uh, But word. it
0: was, I mean, it, it, so it, it was very much everything was hands-on. It yeah. was all inside one little enterprise. I mean... Uh, I, I ran my own record company, Shelter Valley Productions, for years. Um, I corresponded, my first name is Aaron, and I go by my middle name, Angus. Um, but I did all my correspondence as Aaron um, for Angus and the artist, um, because it allowed me to go in and just psychologically be running an office and separate myself from... Angus and ...the artist. And so I had two different sort of... Um, I mean the same person, but I just had two different modes. I was in business mode, or I was in artist mode, and it also allowed me to negotiate um, Angus's contracts. Yeah, you, you know? can blame it's, it's, all the
1: bad stuff on Aaron. On Aaron, yeah. absolutely.
0: But it, it was the beginning of like insulating the artist from the business. Aspects.
2: That's so smart. I can't tell you how many times in my career I had to be like, well, my management says that I need to handle this this way. Um, and there really was management and management was me and Corey. So, <laughs> you know, but, but you leave it behind that veil. But that's like the psychological and musical career equivalent to having a home office but but it's more of a psychological identity thing. That's that's really smart. Sure.
0: Yeah, in my home office, I mean I would I would put on a shirt and tie and go to work yeah, in the morning. That, is amazing. that makes sense. Yeah. It makes sense. Because it meant I'm I'm running a record company right yep. now I'm and this nerd. could have other artists on it, but right now I just need to know as much as possible about the business mm-hmm. and how to promote the art. the artist just happened to be me. I
1: love that. So how did you I just ask this question all the time. How did you learn what you know? How do you know what you know? And people always, because you'll, you'll sit down with an artist and you'll say, well, here's, here's six ideas that I don't feel like you're trying. And I really think they could help you. And they're like, well, how the heck did you know that? And it's like, well, I lift it. But was there a point where you were like reading a book or did you have a mentor? Like how did this all happen where you're like, I know, I think I know how to run my own record label or was it a lot of trial and error for you. Um, it's not that there weren't
0: errors, um but I didn't take a trial and error approach. I just did it and mm-hmm. knew it was gonna work. I knew that a record company needed a logo, so I designed a logo I knew it you know I wanted an that it needed a name, so I wanted a name that was evocative that reflected who I was and what I did that had meaning to me that I could stand behind um i I don't I mean, I would go to workshops and panels and, you know, I went to Folk Alliance. I went to sit in the front row. If there were festival directors speaking, I went to sit in the front row knowing that I'm probably not ready to play any of their festivals, but I'm going to study who they are and what makes them tick so that when I am applying to that festival, I have a sense of the personality of the artistic director and I'm not just sending in, I don't know if that resulted in any traction I didn't play a lot of big festivals so maybe it was you know not the right approach and I should have focused more on building a team Um, but it was just I went with confidence in the direction I felt would get me to a place where um, I could uh, function in the industry at the highest level and in doing that you know you absorb the terminology you absorb the ideas you uh, you know Certainly, with peers, we, there was a whole gang of us who were trying to do that. So you, you look at the successes, and I, I learned more from the successes and um, mistakes of others than I did from my own. And I would sort of make decisions based on what I saw was working.
1: Absolutely, yeah. It's it's interesting if you just sponge up enough and then use your gut and your intuition, mm-hmm. a lot of things can can move forward. And absolutely, I can identify with. Just seeing what other people are doing and trying to understand what that looks like and what how they you know reverse engineer like okay I saw them succeed here and they were here how did they get there oh I, I, they did this this and this and yeah. it's it, it's a lot easier to learn also from other people's
2: mistakes yeah that
1: way you don't have to make them
2: yeah <laughs> someone else is making them for you you get to yeah. watch
0: uh, and it's not to say I wasn't without my mistakes including. Some epic career um, <laughs> decisions that were made you know mostly in exhaustion and one of the interesting things looking back is that success um, breeds this external sense that you don't need support. So I think had I been uh, l- less successful, and I use that you know um, modestly um, or had I not been able to do as many things, the perhaps there would have been more uh, industry um, interest or support to do things, but I think some people sort of hung back. That oh, that and not that I was all doing it, but there was an impression that well, somehow my career is being taken care of, right? Um, and that I must have a team together. And
2: but it's like, no, I'm looking for the next step. Right? I want the next step. I don't want to be the one managing everything understand that.
1: So was there, it, it seems as if in my research that there was a bit of a next step to working with maybe another label, another um, people.
0: Yeah, I did um, work with uh, an agent in Canada, the US and Australia. It's three different agencies at, at different times. Um, I had management for like a hot second um, and moved from um, an independent label, my own label, uh, with distribution to, uh, an established Canadian national label. Um, and yeah, so it, it was moving to that next level, but it's still at that stage, it was, uh, you know, almost a decade invested in, in time and money. And it just it wasn't getting to that next level, f- um, in terms of the financial return on f- bookings and festival engagements and, Um, and so at the, there's sort of the financial tap out, there's the exhaustion of, there's a certain point where, you know, I would have gone anywhere and everywhere. If someone would have booked me every night, I was, I had it in me to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, but that, that wanes if it's not coming together. And at a certain point driving somewhere in my van, I just thought like, I, I can't keep doing this if it doesn't shift gears, I need to take a different path. And mm-hmm. and I think that's where settling in back in my hometown and taking all that creative energy and all that business um, savvy as it were and uh, interest in the, in the genre, but turning that into a festival um, avoided some of the, um, I mean, that too was exhausting, but it was, it avoided some of the heartbreak and burnout of, life on the road not not cycling up to the next level
1: right I and mean, being an artist at some point when it doesn't get there when it doesn't break that next that next level it just it, it, there's too many questions of why am i even doing this it, even even at a, a medium amount of success sure. it just it's it's a, a weird downward spiral when it when the you slow down for just two seconds. And I don't know why we've definitely and you also felt become,
0: that. You, know, it, you become consumed by your own career and that you start to live inside a bubble. And when everything is about you all the time and you're designing posters about you and you're writing Press releases in third person about you, and you're doing interviews about you, and and then your show is about you, and you're telling the same stories, and there's a bit of a weird little twilight zone that you end up in, and right. and then when it's not getting to the next level, and the the financial output is not um, met by the the return, um, there's all there is a bit of a bitter. A heartbroken place, and yeah. when I started getting jealous of my peers and their successes, that's when I realized I needed to, I had to shift, and that that it wasn't it wasn't healthy for me to stay in an artist role. Um, I didn't want to be jealous of my peers, um, and and running a festival was a way to turn that inside out and actually engage some of the peers that I was jealous of, whose work I actually loved, and just find a different way into the heart of what I was trying to do all along, which was just connect audience with art. And the art didn't have to be coming out of me. And in fact, there's an art form to convening community.
1: Right, that jealousy turned into celebration. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, the, 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 yeah. that's the interesting thing, is the antidote to that was the opposite of what you're doing as an artist, rather than about you, about you, about you. Prop up others. And suddenly... There is reward. And when I say reward, I mean, I don't mean financially. I mean fulfillment and relationship and meaning because you're propping up other people instead of trying to prop yourself up. And then suddenly when you do that, others want to prop you up too.
0: It was interesting to all of a sudden have conversations with artistic directors and agents and managers and media who I couldn't. Get the time of day from yep. as an artist. Once I was doing something, uh, and not just because it was, you know, servicing their needs, but there was a genuine, genuine uh, credibility and recognition mm-hmm. of oh that that guy is doing something different, and that's informed by his career as an artist. This will be interesting, and uh, and ultimately, I think that was, um, and, and I I see that time and time again with artists who take on. Um, events or start to produce things outside of their own show that there is a certain um, quality to the to to the work and the event that's born of that sincere knowledge of what it feels like to have to be the artist on stage mm-hmm. so when you're helping to get other artists onto stage um, there's an attention to the details that's that's very personal,
1: well, particularly when you're working with creative folks and and artists like you, you can't properly take care of an artist unless you've been one. Because you don't have that, if you don't have that perspective, there's plenty of promoters that we have met and have book shows and had venues that were never artists and you can walk into their space and and somewhat be it just feels awkward because it's like you have no idea what we've been through to get here and you're treating us like...
2: Uh, like you're doing us a favor. Yeah, I
1: mean, <laughs> I, Yeah, so I think that it is just so incredibly valuable to have been an artist and to had some success and to had some failures and then get to like, start creating with these other artists from, you know, both perspectives. You know, we know you as the, the the director of Folk Alliance. Um, I'm curious, did you know how that career came into your life? Did they approach you? Did you approach them? You know, where did that start?
0: Yeah. So after coming to Folk Alliance as an artist, Came, I came representing the festival and had that experience. Was then with the Folk Music Ontario organization uh, with their board, and then came to Folk Alliance and sat in the annual general meetings and was you know fascinated by the the governance structure of Folk Alliance and the bylaws and you know the policies and procedures that made this thing happen. So it was just like looking at it now without an interest in terms of being booked or who I was going to book, but like how does this thing work? Um, and in, in time I ended up working with the Ontario Arts Council and then it was supporting artists uh, through the, the granting program that I oversaw, which was a public fund, um, to underwrite the cost of touring. But that was everything from the Toronto Symphony Orchestra or the National Ballet, who had major international engagements where what they were being paid to tour was never going to match what it was going to cost. So the public fund was there to help underwrite that because there was perceived value in having that artistic work toured into other, you know, not just for the citizens of the province, but, you know, beyond beyond those borders. Um, so coming into Folk Alliance then in that role was about... Um, Looking at market development, and and it was in that capacity in Toronto uh, six years ago when Folk Alliance came uh, through Canada last, which it does every um, on average every sixth year, and I was um, on a panel at that conference um, in my role with the Arts Council, and um, after that. Panel, I think because of a couple of comments uh, made, there were two uh, board members who were at the the door and just took me aside and said, "Hey, do you do you know that the current executive director is planning to retire in a year, and you know it might be something you'd be interested in?" And a couple of hours later, um, was having a drink at, at the bar related to that with the my predecessor, Lewis Louis J. Myers, um, just to talk through that reality in the timeline. I still, I'd never thought about it or considered it. It wasn't something that necessarily appealed to me. Um, I had a sense that I might be um, good at that based on running the festival and, you know, other leadership roles, uh, but it still hadn't really. So that was in February of 2013. Um, I happened to be, I was, Actually, thinking about getting back into music, and that spring, released a live album that I had recorded ten years before. Just to get it, I needed to get it off the bookshelf (laughs) and get it out there into the world before I did something new Mm -hmm. um, to wrap up that project. So I, I was doing a mini tour in the U.S. because I couldn't perform in Ontario because I was with a government funder, so there was a conflict of interest there. So I was here um, in the U S in the spring of 2013, uh, and made a point to detour and come through Kansas city. And Lewis had just moved the office from Memphis to Kansas city. They were just setting up. He and I walked through the West and he hadn't done a conference there yet, but we were just, you know, chatting through the, the space and dropped into the office. And for me, that was just my method acting, you know, moment of, <laughs> literally driving through the streets of Kansas City to see whether I would like this place. This the good? job hadn't even been posted and it wasn't my job for the taking. It was um it, ultimately there was a an executive search firm um that was used to uh do a, a fairly thorough um call and and screening of candidates from all across North America. Um I came very late to the process. I think the job was posted in that that summer, um, June or July, um, and people applied, and uh, I was on a different career path and life path at that time, uh, personally and professionally, so I hadn't really considered it, and it wasn't until late in the fall um, that I threw my hat into the ring, thinking surely it was closed at that stage. Uh, I think it was in November, and... Um, I was in my first round of interviews the next day, and wow. and that and then there's another six month process and multiple phone interviews and an interview in person here with the other finalists, and um, so that yeah that a year later from that first conversation um, was here in Kansas City for the final interview.
1: You know, I'm curious too. Like that's a, a crazy wind up to end up in this job. Um, but I'm I'm curious how this job for you differs, you know, working in a nonprofit versus, say, like a CEO of a corporation. I would assume that they operate somewhat differently. But what's that like for you to kind of oversee all this in the nonprofit world and over all these artists and this creative thing? it, it seems like it would have so much flex and and change all the time.
0: I mean, most of most of the venues and concert series and festivals that I played in my touring days were non-profits um, and, you know, volunteer-run organizations. So I had sort of a really grassroots level appreciation of that these things happen in communities because people care about it and they somehow organize it enough that it stays afloat. Um, And I, I grew up, you know, with Plenty of uh, exposure to community level grassroots organizations and you know things that happened for the the betterment of the community that were really driven by individuals and ideals. So none of that was was foreign. But um, running the festival, I mean that that was a nonprofit, and it took us some time to get there. But that was a learning curve on like how do you set up a board? How do you um, how do you um, manage the financials how do you access public grants what's required what's the accountability so really the the deep training ground was starting that that the festival um folk music ontario serving on their board was a governance experience i literally went into my first board meeting um as a random director um and was reading the bylaws and there was something happening in the meeting and i just said you know well I don't know I'm I'm the new guy here so correct me if I'm wrong but it says here in the bylaws that we can't do that and and there was this moment of Science. silence and then it was like <laughs> shock oh, okay and this crazy policy and procedure junkie that I didn't know was inside me came out and <laughs> that led to you know all in the end running that board and starting a three-year process to review and update all of our bylaws and our policies. And so again, that was just something in the way that I compute things knew that, well, you can do whatever you want, but it, it has to either be in the bylaws or if it's not and you want to do it differently, then you go to the section of the bylaws that says how you change the bylaws and you make that change so that what you do and what you say always syncs up and you can change it, but there's a process for change. Um, so all of these experiences, um, and, and then with the Arts Council, it was funding uh, or overseeing the, the the funding of hundreds of nonprofits, and uh, and coaching people through, and looking at the successful ways that nonprofits operated, and then supporting the others that were um, limping along or had challenges with their governance structure, and so all of those things. Fed directly into this, and although the some of the elements are different between the U.S. and Canada, fundamentally, you know, running a charity is um, the the same on, on both sides of the border, and it's uh, ultimately it it is a business. I mean, non you can make a million dollars as a nonprofit. You just can't. One person doesn't own that. Right. The the organization owns that profit, and the profit gets put back into the mission of the organization. So it's really about uh, the nonprofit being its own entity, not owned by anyone other than the people it serves.
1: Is there a benefit or was there a reason that Folk Alliance is and became a nonprofit versus uh, a for-profit business? Is it, Do you think that there's a, a great advantage to one over the other? or? You know, that's. I always am wondering. You know, because there are plenty of things, particularly within the music industry, that are very much for profit. Um, but you have the largest folk organization in the entire world, and it's a non for profit. Um, I'm just curious, like what the benefits or or downfalls of that might be. I mean, I
0: I can't speak to the um, initial conversations, but it was there from. Day one in the you know the gathering in Malibu in 1989 when they were talking about the the potential for such an organization mm-hmm. as yet undefined but this alliance for the folk music and dance um, community right. um, I, I don't know that they even described it as an industry at that time right um, but it was I mean that's pre social media that's uh, that that was really a physical gathering of the key um, advocates and, uh, and players within that community. Um, so the, why they chose to go one way or the other, uh, I'm not sure, but I, I do think that what it did do was, and and what creating a nonprofit approach versus a business approach, what that does is keep it accountable to uh, a vision, a mission, and and values to serve the people. Right, yeah. and ultimately, the the membership controls the destiny. Um, so it can't. Again, it can it can make or not make money. Uh, it can make a a nonprofit can make lots of money. It just has to go back into it. And I think what that does is um, keep the identity. Um, it's not just that it's controlled by the membership through their elected directors who, who govern the organization. But I think it it keeps the general momentum of the organization uh, in sync with the, the ebb and flow of, of interest and the natural evolution of the community that it's supporting in a way that if it's in a business structure around, I mean, I think of that just in terms of, even two music festivals, one that's nonprofit with a board of directors and one that is uh, a business owned by someone. Um, I mean, you can have the same artists on it. You can have the, all of the same um, elements. But when your decisions are are driven primarily by, um, by the finances versus a charitable mission, yeah. which includes doing things that may cost you money but you're doing them and there are things that we do at Folk Alliance that do not generate revenue um, that are mission specific Um, and those are of value and it's in a business scenario you would look at that and say well we're not doing that because that's clearly going to lose us money but in a nonprofit, you look at it and say well that's we're doing that we're not doing it because we can make money or not. We're doing it because we should, because it's related to our mission. and the right we thing's will, the right thing. Yeah, And we will find other ways to either source the funding or, or request support from the community to do this good thing or the other aspects of what we do that generate profit we will use in order to further this yeah. part
2: of the mission. You know what's really interesting to me and I'm, I was kind of having this epiphany while you were speaking about all of this is, you know, Corey asked like, the advantages, the differences between operating as a not-for-profit versus a for-profit. And all of a sudden, I was having all these flashbacks and thoughts to other conversations that Corey and I have had with other artists and industry people about how the commercial industry, like we grumble and we groan because the commercial industry and the ones that hold the keys, how much they abuse and misuse and manipulate art and artists for the sake of profit and profit itself is not the enemy because we have to make profit to live and to eat and to pay our bills and to continue to go on and to grow. Profit's not the the enemy, but when profit is the goal, it really changes the vision and the decisions we make and the way we treat people, and it makes me wonder if you know, Corey and I are constantly have com- having conversations with other artists and industry people about how you know in the last 15 years the music industry has deflated, it's collapsed because of the change in digital media and distribution and the way art is created and sold and profit is um, brought in. It-, it has totally changed and and we know that there's a big paradigm shift that is taking place but it hasn't landed yet it hasn't found its home and we're trying all these different mediums in streaming audio and we have subs- subscription services and patreons and what is this going to look like and it really makes me wonder if the fu- if the future of the music industry as a whole, not just folk, but pop and rock and rap. If what that looks like could be modeled off of what folk alliance is. If instead it became an alliance for rock artists, if we created an alliance, if if rap artists created an alliance, almost like a union and said, we're going to help each other. And we're not going to be treated this way. And we're going to do things fairly. And we're going to prop each other up rather than competing and stabbing and killing and bleeding out. Because that's what it is so many times. You know, if instead we said, what if we could structure things more like the way Folk Alliance has structured things? Because what it was born out of is, and this is what, this is what I saw at the award ceremony. This is what, you know, I've been a part of Folk Alliance in years past and I loved it, but I loved it because of the bohemian and the energy and, and, and the fun experience. But what I saw this year being more, a part of the inner circle and the staff and the way you guys invited us in to um, to help support what you were doing um, is that, that beautiful video that you guys played during the awards ceremony really outlined um, the way Folk Alliance came into being was there was a community. And that community was, it was not a part of the major music industry, for the most part, you had the Dillons and you had the the Denvers. Um, But for the most part, there was this whole community of people that were, I wouldn't say neglected, but I would say they were somewhat fringe and on the outer circle and they needed support. And they were all looking around at each other saying, we all need support. Wait a second. We're a community that can prop each other up and be our own support. And as the commercial music industry continues to deflate... I wonder how many more of those are going to be born out of that. How many more coalitions and unions and communities will be born out of this deflation and the abuse that's come from the deflation and the deflation that's come from the abuse? Well, and, and we're, not the,
0: um, we're not the exclusive... Um, organization. But certainly, I mean, each of the genres, I mean, from the the Blues Foundation, which is international, but based out of Memphis, to the IBMA, the International Bluegrass uh, Musicians Association, uh, to to AMA, to um, more boutique and very regionally specific, whether it's um, Acadian music or uh, French-Canadian music or... um, I think within the cultural sector, in particular, uh, these alliances or um, convening of of people based on community and need and support. Um, it's not that ha- it, that it has always happened, but it, it's there are certainly substantial organizations that are serving um, pools of genres. Uh, it may not, you know, to your point. It may be that at a indie rock level um, there isn't the same support or support or organization uh, in place, but certainly I mean even looking at some of the the larger industry groups that do have similar conferences um, and for whom and it's not to say that a business model can't also i mean most people don't start don't go to all of the effort to start a a business version of a music industry association strictly to make money. Mu- nobody looks at it and says, you know what? I'm a classical musician, but you know where the money is, is in country music. I'm going to start a country music right. association. Right. Um, you know, they, they do it because they genuinely, um, th- they do it because they genuinely connect with the, the music. They love the community and they see a need. Right. Uh, they may just choose to take a business model because it's in some instances, If you have an idea and you see the opportunity, it's easier to run with it and set something up and test it out and work with who you want to work. And if it crashes and burns, well, it was your own money and your own fault. And if it Mm -hmm. succeeds wildly, well, you reap the rewards of that. Um, And it doesn't mean that you have to erase the good or not have a mission to it. Um, It's just that in a nonprofit from the beginning, it's a collective approach to the success. Mm -hmm.
1: For what it's worth too, like you talk about, you know, the deterioration of the music industry in a whole, I love it. You know, I know like it's, it's hard to watch, um, like the past 50 years, how it's changed, but I love the fact that there's less money in the system from our viewpoint and that there are, I, and I don't mean this because I want everyone to to fail, but I think that there's a real opportunity where I have seen in the past years, like record sales are down and, and you know, lots of labels are shutting down and studios are shutting down. And, and in a sense, that's really like disheartening and discouraging, you are know, like, oh no, what's happening. But out of that, innovation is being born. No, and that's exactly what I'm saying. Right, though, right. But, is but, 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 but 30
2: years ago people held the keys and you couldn't have them. But now with the deflation, we have a chance to press reset and become something more beautiful right. as, as an industry.
1: Right. Well, I think it's also, there's a, there's a purification that I don't, I don't think is a popular concept. But there's a purification that's happening right now within the music industry that less people are able to make a living making music. And I personally think that's great because I think that our generation... There was a there was a sweet spot when we first started touring, from like 2008 to 2012, mm-hmm. that you could make a good living touring on the road. Yep. And then like 2014, it started getting hard. Gas prices started going up. You know, it was, it was almost 250 dollars just to fill up our van tank. You know, and that would get you four hours. You know, like, but there was there was this moment where literally every single band in our hometown that I can think of started touring. Like everyone that had like five songs started touring, went Mm -hmm. out, made money. And then in a three year period, everyone
2: got married, got a job and went home because
1: they ran out. (laughs) They ran out of money. They (laughs) ran out of steam. And, but it, there was a purification where those same people, I saw them go home, slow down, start making music and it was the best music they ever made in their entire life. And the only reason they made it was cause they really loved making yeah. music. And I, I personally think it's a great thing that the industry is going, I don't know what to do. We can't make any money Ugh. <laughs> because you're starting to see the people who are succeeding. You know why? It's cause they work really hard and they write really good songs. And I think that, I think this, that's one of the things that Folk Alliance highlighted for me this year is is in past years, I assumed that there was probably a lot of people that came to Folk Alliance who might not have any connections, might just be looking to network. And a lot of people handing out business cards because they just don't know what to do and they're just hoping something sticks. But this year, um, you know, getting deeper into what was going on, I met so many career musicians who were not there just to just to connect they were there to share and they were there to um give and but they were there to say like this is what I'm doing I don't necessarily need your help but I really love this music you're doing and everyone was celebrating each other but it was it was interesting to me how the more the system fails us and the more that there's a deterioration of the music industry, the less people are doing it because they, they just want to be famous. And the more people that are, that this is the only thing they want this to do is in life. This who they are. It's and who they and are. At, there's uh, a,
0: and I think at, at Folk Alliance, at the international edition of Folk Alliance, by the time you've come to an international conference, in kansas city moving to montreal next year um for a year uh, it's and you're coming from estonia and new zealand and vancouver and austin uh you're coming because uh you are in it for good yeah you might not always be a recording touring singer songwriter but you know that this is what you are doing. And there is that sense of um, having arrived wherever that is at whatever level and having found a way to make it work. And that, I mean, not everyone is full-time at it, but for the most part, this is what people are doing. And you don't sort of uh, do this as a weekend warrior and have your full-time day job and then go to Folk Alliance. And it's not the right... If you're showing up at focal lines and you're going to showcase it's because you're game to go and you're building at a level that um that warrants being there and 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 that the talent is there um that has been refined through doing these showcases and the the self-study in relation to other artists. Like you can't come to an event like Focal Alliance and not be humbled by the talent. right? right? And if you are a great artist, you're going to see as many great artists as you can imagine um, who are going to teach you a thing or two, including, I mean, you can see legends and luminaries or you can be a legend and luminary and watch artists and see yourself twenty-five years ago and see the hunger but also the pure passion and the things that are informing a career that aren't about the success you've or the the, the, the name recognition or the team you have in place and that's about sheer tap into inspiration.
1: Right. There was what was crazy to me at Folk Alliance this year is there was no at no point did like the escalation of talent stop because I would see a showcase and be like, oh my God, that's the best, that's the best singer I've ever heard in my life. That's the best song I've ever heard in my life. And it would only take me an hour later to this other showcase to go, oh my God. Like it's, it's, it's one inspiring. And also like, I wanted to quit so many times. Like I wanted to quit and write the best song I've ever written every like 10 minutes. You know, it was, it's amazing how high that bar really goes when you are around people who you know some people there you know are winning grammys and some people there are getting started and what was interesting is some of them had the exact same level of talent and and just to see the differences in careers and and stories so far um you know talking about folk music um i'm curious in your life uh why folk music you know where where does folk music mean to you Um, I mean, I I do think it
0: ultimately, um, personally, it comes down to the songs and, uh, I I don't, I don't think that I would have said that folk music is the singular musical form that I was interested in or that I was going to follow in life. Um, it's still not, I mean, Two days after Folk Alliance, I was at an EDM festival for four days in the jungle. Like that's you know in the jungle. Uh, yep. Yeah, on so it's it's my my musical interests are all over the map. There is something about the intimacy of folk music and the engagement of audience and the the fact that there isn't um, there there literally isn't. A separation between the artist and, and audience other than, you know, the, the monitors at the front of the stage, if you're on a stage, but that, that it's a very accessible, um, community and musical form. Um, and that's not to say that folk music is just singer songwriters. I mean, it's, it's a, a sea of singer songwriters. I was one of them. Um, but, many of those songs are informed by the folk music traditions that are about an artist creating um, a song that tells a story that allows an audience to enter the life of someone else and not just the life of that singer-songwriter talking about their personal life. But um, at its most magic, for me, the old-school version of folk is an artist who is telling someone else's story in a way that allows someone else to inhabit that life. And the artist is just the vehicle for um, pulling one bit of reality and planting it in the head and heart of a listener. Um, So that's, that's what has fascinated me. But, you know, Billy Joel's... Allentown and Downeaster Alexa are folk songs, in my view. If if you use that mapping of like telling the story of a time and a people in a way that allows a listener, even if I was thirteen years old listening to my you know my radio at, you know from the rock station in Rochester, coming across the waves of Lake Ontario into my boyhood nighttime bedroom, but filling me with this sense of what it was like to work in the the you know the mining towns of, you know, Allentown, like that was fascinating to me. And so I think folk, folk is less about music and more about an ethos and uh, the intent of delivery uh, and, and the, the manner of presenting
1: it. Well, as we start to wrap up here, I, 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 was curious, since you are the executive director of Folk Alliance International, I'm guessing you have a pretty, large overview of kind of how folk is moving around the world and, and the artists that are creating it and the people that are winning and losing. I'm curious what, um, the state of folk, you know, folk music in the world looks like to you. Like where are we at? You know, what, what, how are we participating in, and how the planet, you know, re- revolves.
0: Um, I mean, I think this is the most exciting time for the folk music term and genre. I and mean, there are more artists, out, you know, road-dogging it all over North America with instruments in their vehicles, singing their songs to 30 people in a house and 50 people in a church basement and 150 people in a high school gymnasium and a field full of listeners, you know, at festivals all across the country. Um, There are, uh, you know, certainly there are challenges with with the economy of it all and how to keep it, uh, keep the show on the road, but um, and, and how to keep organizations running, but there's there is no shortage of folks who are putting on events. Every town worth its worth its name has a summer festival, and most of those summer festivals have you know independent artists that are playing you know regionally specific music, and it's so it's a it's a really vibrant time. Um, looking globally, I mean, I think the 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 biggest and most exciting part of our um, Growth, um, not just in terms of numbers, but in terms of the construct and concept of folk, is stretching our own community and industry past that sort of uh, Bob Dylan. Pete Seeger, Woody Guthrie' vision of the the solo singer songwriter as the folk singer, and to look at folk music as well. The first folk music here in North America was the was the indigenous music. Like that's that was the music of the people, and um, so the term folk relates to different styles of music depending on on where you are and under our banner of folk that is blues and bluegrass and celtic and cajun and Appalachian and singer-songwriters um you you know the the folk music of peru is different than the folk music of japan is different than the folk music of estonia Uh, in scandinavia folk music that term strictly means fiddle music. That is the folk music. Being a singer-songwriter in Oslo, you are not a folk. There is no such thing as the folk singer. You're a pop singer if you're a singer-songwriter, even if you come over here to Folk Alliance and you're just another curly-haired guy with a guitar singing songs (laughs) that you made up just like all the other folkies here. So, you know, throughout the world, the term gets used differently, but if we look at it in that truest sense of the music of the people. Well, it's, it is genuinely, um, whatever is happening at a primarily acoustic level in a way that is reflective of the the culture, the time and the, and the people of an area. In many instances, it has a more traditional connotation. So, you know, the folk music of Armenia is going to be associated with, uh, more traditional, Attire and uh, traditional dances, and sort of the history and the past, as opposed to the contemporary folk um, music that we would um, map over some of our more uh, contemporary artists too. But I think that that's what's exciting too is as an international organization looking at the the breadth of that term from traditional to contemporary, and then using that in um, in a more uh, contemporary setting like North America, but then to also remind ourselves that well, here, what is the traditional folk music of all of the people inside North America? And then outside of North America, looking at what is more traditionally folk and saying, well, what's the contemporary
1: folk version in Hungary or Ireland or, um, yeah, so it's, it's an exciting time. It's been enlightening to me just to even hear that that was the thing. I, I did not grow up around music. And I grew up a, a little bit of, of folk music, but to, particularly like, like Sean said at the awards ceremony, it's the, that's the most powerful Folk Alliance experience I've ever had, which I did not go in. I didn't into. expect. I, I know. I, I was, really thought, I was thinking, I oh, thought we got to do this. Yeah. This might be the most boring thing we do at Folk Alliance. I, I had no idea what it was. It floored me. I, yeah, I was like cr- walking around with a camera crying half the time. <laughs> But to see that diversity and to see that like four letters that make up the word folk, those those letters could not be more full and more vibrant and full of just an undeniable amount of life in them, Um, and to just know that like you know we all think at least Midwest kids like us folk just means Bob Dylan. To to know that that is such a small piece. Of, of, of such a large and extraordinarily
2: long journey that Folk has taken. It I was super enlightening to me. That comes back to what was said in the video at the beginning, the middle, and the end. All groups valued. And that's what Folk Alliance was not only birthed out of, but that's what has romanced me so much about the conference is when you go to the conference, you see that. All groups valued. You're not just standing behind one particular or most popular kind of folk music, but you see rooms and stages and panels for every different type of group and art. Um, And I think that speaks to the sincerity of the mission behind Folk Alliance, all groups valued.
0: Yeah. I mean, it is a bold mission, and it is an exhausting mission but it is, um, I mean, utterly um, exciting and enthralling to consider how much potential there is. I mean, even just inside Kansas City or any city for that matter, it doesn't have to be about the full time touring artists. I mean, folk music includes, like, what is the music that's happening down at the Croatian cultural center, you know, and, and where does that appear inside the music community, you know, the, the, the bar scene music community? Well, it doesn't, but it's, it is part of the musical ecology. And so there are these, you know, hives and collections of community and culture within a city, um, that under the banner of folk, actually there are ways to access not only those musical experiences, but those cultural communities. And, and, in its essence, that's what folk music does is connect people. And if we can map that into modern society and look at our community and say, well, what, what is the folk music tradition of the Vietnamese community or the Ethiopian community? And where is that? And why, why isn't that part of our broader musical awareness? Um, and so that's part of certainly what the, um, diversification and focus on inclusion and internationalism at Folk Alliance has been about like, let's all remind ourselves that what we know is, is what we know, but there is so much more to see and hear and explore and be inspired by and cross pollinate with. And, um, you know, that's the way, you know, once you sit artists down from two different countries that see, you know, see a spark in what each other is doing, That's, you don't need an agent and a manager to go and tour in, you know, Hungary. You just need to fall in love with another artist's work and have them dig you. And then all of a sudden they're opening for you and you're opening for them. And that's the beginning. Like, more more gets done at that level, which is ultimately about building friendships and relationships. And when you do that across languages and borders, well, then it's not just a country. It's a place where your friend lives that you toured once and you have these memories. And then it becomes a personalized place for you as an individual. And when you're an artist doing that, then you're coming back to your Midwestern town or whatever city you're in, and you become the conduit to share a personal view of that place and that people. And if that's what
2: folk music is able to do, amazing. Sign me up for the next decade. Yeah, it's such a beautiful grassroots, but like functional and efficient version of industry. You know what I mean? Like, like just rather than I need a booking agent and I need this and I need that meet someone whose music you dig, who's somewhere that you're not care about them and, and work together. It's beautiful.
1: I I was just really encouraged by an organization um, that was willing to take on something so broad and to, Really, in my view, play so much more of a legacy game than just a short term like how can we particularly just getting so far beyond just traditional American folk or just the folk that we know, but to 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 know how hard it's going to be to include everyone, but knowing that that willingness to include everyone and in all things folk is really going to bring the color that has really maybe never existed in our broad sense of what folk is. And and we're in an interesting time, too, because now we have the availability to actually share those things. and And with technology and with, you know, the Internet, like... We you have a real chance for this this thing that might have been a hundred year goal to become a thirty five year goal, and to be able to include all these people, and to it's really exciting, you know, to think about what if we start as Sean and I are singer songwriters, but what if what would happen and what would change in us if we actually started to see and have some illumination to what, like you said, what Vietnamese folk is, or what folk and all these other, like, what is that going to do to the world of, of, you know, folkies or singers, songwriters or anybody to actually have more access to all these different cultures and these different ideas and what matters to them? Um, not only just from a creative musical standpoint, um, but, you know, Martin Joseph, after he won his award, um, spoke so highly to the importance that us as songwriters have in this time in in the political landscape that we're in and in the world landscape that we're in. We have an opportunity to speak truths and to change culture uh, for the better and to love deeper and to and to be informed on how we're affecting other people and what those relationships are like. And it's just such it's I feel like we I'm and I'm so thankful for this but we're getting to view into an organization who has taken a 30-year run to get to a point where I feel like we're kind of at a starting point again like a rebirth of of folk just seems like imminent and it seems like I'm just so jazzed because I don't know anything about this broader world view of folk nothing you know maybe what I've caught off documentaries and tv and what I've caught from the few folk alliances I've been at but you know, just even sitting in this podcast and hearing you talk about, you know, countries that I didn't even think, oh yeah, they probably like I didn't think Vietnam had folk music. Music is everywhere. Why? <laughs> but why did I think that? And and for just that small illumination like has got me so jazzed and so I just can't imagine the depth that we're going to get to go and um I'm just really excited for all that you guys are doing. Um and speaking of what you're doing, can you tell us a little bit about what Folk Alliance looks like next year and how people can kind of get involved with that?
0: Sure. So we're we're headed to Montreal in um, in February February 13th to the 17th, um, 2019. Um, it's the Canadian edition. So, I mean, it's the same It's the same event, it's the same basic structure, it just happens to take place in Montreal. Um, not unlike when it moved more frequently around the U.S. And one year it would be in Nashville, and then it would be in San Diego, and it would be in Cleveland, and the, the flavor of the conference changed based on what city it was in. So uh, we just do that move less frequently now. Um, Montreal uh, is a... a A special city. Um, It's in a French province, but it's a completely bilingual city. Um, The hotel that we're going into has done a complete um, renovation, and this is one of the 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 Grand Dame like earliest uh, hotels, the old school stone uh, wall sort of um, regal fortress. Type hotel um, and, and has a very commanding presence and, and historical significance in the in the city, but they've done a complete rebirth of its um, brand and space, so that it is a uh, it's being um, presented as the most you know a creative hub for business and the entire. I've never been inside a hotel that has interior design and layout um, that has as creative an approach, so uh it has uh, it's going to have a very special flow to it there's nothing clinical or stoic or sort of now we're in the meeting room A you know there are meeting rooms that have swings instead of seats there are um you know entire meeting rooms that just have Beanbag chairs instead of seats, so it's the whole thing. Can we thing request has been, that
1: room next year? <laughs> yeah, that needs to
0: be the whole room. thing has been as a property has been re-envisioned to just and and that's the character of Montreal too. It's yeah, it's. Quirky. It's new. It's bold. It's old school. It's uh, they will do things that other cities and, and places won't because it's Montreal. Um, it also happens to be uh, the fiftieth anniversary for that hotel of John Lennon and Yoko Ono having their bed in in that hotel. No way. Uh, it's that one? That's With the photo. The, one, the infamous the photo. One. Um, where they had their protest as a bed-in and did all of their press releases yeah. out of that room, and where they wrote the song Give Peace a Chance. So there's a significance that relates directly to the folk music community um, that we will tap into. Um, the theme is the spirit of creativity. Uh, so we'll be looking, whereas this year we were celebrating our 30th, I mean, that that was the theme, looking back and sort of exploring and celebrating the community. Um, this coming edition will be uh, a deep dive into a more esoteric view uh so it's not that we won't have industry components to it as well but we will be looking at you know what what is art where does inspiration come from what what does true collaboration look and feel like um it, it will you know include speakers and guests and all sorts of um approaches to looking at the creative process that will be uh, a little more adventurous than and now we have five panelists talking about you know the creative process uh, so we're going to take a bit of an undone conference approach and and kind of shake up the the model a bit which um i think is is exciting and uh, it's not just that conferences fall into it's it's easy to do a conference you you know have your panels you have your exhibit hall you there's a format and whether it's folk music or it's dental hygiene or it's the dairy association you know that you can run a conference in a certain way so um it's not that that conference model is done but it's this is a time to hit refresh and have some fun with it and see if we can't play out some of those successes into a continued refresh in future years. And, um, you know, there's, we're not throwing the entire structure out, but we're going to take some risks.
1: Yeah. It's getting a little liquid instead of so solid. Yep, yeah, exactly. It's awesome. Kind of embracing maybe the hotel's ideas too. The hotel's idea also just, you know, literally being in a
0: city where people are going to hear a language that isn't their language. And, you know, it, it, the Canadian editions certainly draw more Canadian uh, industry artists and, and buyers. Um, and it also brings in a lot more international, um, Montreal, they're, you know, direct flights in from Tokyo and Paris and Stockholm. And uh, so there's, there's a way for the international community to mainline into our event um, in a way that's a, a little uh, different in, inside the U.S., depending on where we are. Um, so the, the demographic composition shifts a bit, and that's part of the excitement also.
1: Well, as we wrap up, how can we find out more about Folk Alliance and find out more about you? Just this is a good opportunity. Just anything you want to plug, this is the spot to do it. Sure. Uh, I mean, there's lots more to Folk Alliance than the conference
0: itself, um, but that's a whole other story. Uh, folk.org is the easiest way to, um, to see the archive of... All of the the videos that have been created about the organization, about our um, lifetime achievement award recipients, uh, to learn more about the the festival we run, the music camp we run, some of the outreach and, and advocacy activities, uh, some of the the resources that um, both members and the public can access um, that don't necessarily have to have anything to do with attending our conference. That are just music industry resources and then certainly all of the uh, relevant details about the upcoming conferences and um, as for me you know out there somewhere in the ether there are some songs online um, one day I'll get back to singing <laughs> you and me
1: both yeah well we we'll will do it at the same time good times um, well I have one last question for you it's a question we ask everybody but in your opinion greatest record of all time
0: Greatest record, so it's not a song. Not a, um, f- for personal reasons, I would say, I, as it relates to um, just the depth of songwriting and sort of a, an album that arrests me, um, it would be from Freshwater by Stan Rogers, which was released posthumously. But um, yeah, it's a it's a remarkable. Knowing that it was that it was recorded just before he died tragically, um, and the you know, he was in his early 30s, and just to have that snapshot of work that is the next level of, of depth as a as a songsmith, uh, it's a it's a remarkable piece. It brings me to tears.
2: I have to add that to our listen.
1: To yeah. list, no, I haven't. I haven't heard it, so I'm, I'm yeah. really excited. Yeah.
0: It's it's his Great Lakes album. So it's uh, he was. I mean, he, he wrote about Canada in general, um, and had thematic albums. And this one is the the one that focused on the province that I'm from. So the lakes that I'm most familiar with. But it's his uh, from from Freshwater. Okay,
1: yeah. amazing, cool. Well, thank you so much for spending time with
2: us. My pleasure. You're such a nice dude. <laughs> When I first heard your name and your title, I pictured someone completely different. You're a very kind and generous human being.
1: We appreciate that.
2: My pleasure. Well, from the
1: offices at the Folk Alliance International, I am Corey. And I am Sean. Thanks for listening to the Shadowscape Podcast. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Shadowscape Podcast. This podcast was created by Shadowscape Records in Kansas City, Missouri. For more information, check us out online at ShadowscapeRecords.com. You can also find us at Facebook.com slash Shadowscape Records, Instagram at Shadowscape Records, and Twitter at Shadowscape Jams.